Habakkuk chapter 2, the coming judgment of Babylon. Frequently, I'll try to introduce a text before we read it. I want to read this text and then talk about it. It's unusual. Um, It's unusual, and you may even struggle with how is this edifying or beneficial. Um, So let's begin by reading Habakkuk 2, 6 to 20. Habakkuk 2, 6 to 20. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake will make you tremble? Then you will be a spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town of bloodshed and founds a sick city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink to pour out your wrath and make them drunk. In order to gaze at their nakedness, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Lord God, as we read um, this pronouncement of judgment, I pray that we might have ears to hear and eyes to see, that we might glean from it what you would have for us, that we might be confident in your justice, in your righteousness, and in your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. What we have here in Habakkuk 2, 6 to 20 is a prophetic declaration of a taunting song sung by the nations to Babylon. And on that basis, you may struggle with how how is it edifying, how is it beneficial for me to know, for us to spend a Sunday going through a song or a riddle or a piece of poetry, multi-nations will rail against Babylon. And yet we have this here, most of a chapter what, what is the edifying purpose? How, how does this serve us? We are neither the nation singing it, presumably, nor are we Babylon to whom this is being sung. 
How does this edify Habakkuk and his contemporaries? What, what purpose is there in this? Let me suggest to you then um, how this might be edifying or useful for us. One, most immediately to Habakkuk's complaint is the concern of not being able to square God's holiness and his righteousness with his exalting and using a wicked nation like Babylon as his tool of judgment on less wicked peoples. The concern is, how does this square? Most um, directly, this song makes it clear, not only will Babylon be judged, will not the invaders be invaded, the despoilers be spoiled, but the judgment will fit the crime. The judgment will be commensurate with what they have done. The detail of this song makes that clear. Habakkuk can be confident, and by extension, you and I can be confident that whatever evils are going around among us, whatever we see in the world, whatever vexation we have, Lord, why would you allow this? Lord, how could you let this happen? Lord, why did you not act when this happened? In the end, we will all see and be satisfied. In the end, God will not only do well and do good, but be seen to do good. There will be an audience who is seeing his just and righteous judgments. God's judgments are not in secret. And so most directly, you and I from this text can be confident. The scales will balance. Right will be done. No one is going to get away with it, even if in this life they appear to get away with it. That's, that's one use of this passage. A second use of this passage is to be aware of the fact that even though, as I said at the beginning of this series, that America is not a Christian nation, it's not in a covenant with God like Israel was. Israel is unique as a people who formerly entered into a covenant with God at Mount Sinai. Yet the Lord God does deal with nations. We just don't know how unless he tells us. And yet here, in these five woes, we get some insight into the types of things a nation might do that might invite God's judgment. God's going to tell us why Babylon is deserving of judgment, and we may therefore be able to glean, perhaps this is why God might judge a nation. Now, I want to give a caution here. So often we have headline theology where we look at the news we see what's going on, and then we start to try to guess at what the Lord God is doing. And there's a verse in Philemon that I find very helpful. In Philemon, Paul's writing to Philemon about his runaway slave who he's sending back now as a brother. And Paul says this concerning how these events have transpired. Philemon 1.15. Perhaps, this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while. You might have him back forever. And all I want to observe is this. On the one hand, Paul is willing to guess at what the Lord God is doing in history. So on the one hand, perhaps this is what God is doing. On the other hand, a scripture-writing apostle who's been to the third heavens is not willing to say more confidently than, perhaps. So we have in Philemon 1.15, both the warrant, is it okay to try to guess at what God might be doing in the world around us? Well, yes, it is. Please don't be more confident than Paul. And, and the danger, I think, for the church can be whenever we see something happen, this is God's judgment for perhaps, maybe, join Paul in not being more confident with your exegesis of the historical events than Paul. So we're getting from this text, 
the basis, of, at least in this instance, why God is judging a nation. And so we get some insight into how he might deal with a nation. What things might a nation do that might invite God's judgment? And yet, even as we look around us and try to make sense of the world, be cautious. Unless God tells us what or why he is doing something, we best not be too confident. We better hold our assertions lightly. Um, perhaps this is what God is doing. Third, third, third use of this passage, and I know I'm stressing this, but this is a rich passage. We're barely going to get into it. Um, there, it's, it's literally far more complicated than I thought getting into this. There's so much going on from a literature standpoint. So I just want to frame how to take this, and we'll try to move forward um, with some level of speed. This is not just a denunciation of Babylon, but of all who proudly reject God's call to humble faith. Um, look, look back at 2.4, really. The one word to the righteous, the one word to God's people. Um, behold, his soul is puffed up. The he, linking back to 2.117, is he then to keep on emptying his nets and mercilessly killing forever. And the Lord says, no, behold, he, Babylon, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. And, and the contrast was clear. Babylon trusts in its own strength. Babylon trusts in its own might. In contrast, to the, there are those who are humble and they trust in the Lord and in his might. And so in another sense, this judgment coming for Babylon is the judgment coming for all the proud, all those who reject God's grace, all those who insist, I will do this. I will trust in myself. Thank you. And so there's a warning for all of us here. Those are at least three ways I think that we can, we can benefit from this passage. So that said, let's begin um, by looking at them. You'll see that it breaks up into five three-verse sections, and four of the five beginning with woe to him. The translation woe to him, one of my commentators suggests, could be ha, or ha ha. It's a mocking taunt. That's part of what's tough. This is a mocking taunt. This is meant to sting. Um, so... What we see in the verses 6 to 8, and in all of these, this is a reversal, the theme of reversal, is that the pillager will be pillaged. The pillager will be pillaged. And verse 6 serves as an introduction to the entire section. He writes in verse 6, Shall not all these take up their taunts against him with scoffings and riddles for him and say, Okay, so first question, who are all these? All these are the nations that Babylon has been gathering up. Look back at verse 5. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these, all these nations, all these peoples. So this is the taunting song or the, the riddle, or the piece of poetry. It's very It's poetic. All the nations will say to Babylon. The nations take up a taunting song. And what's evident from the structure in the Hebrew is this is a well-crafted taunt. It's going to sting all the more because it's, it's pithy. It's memorable. A memorable, pithy, and stinging derision. Um, and, and so the picture is not only will Babylon be overthrown... Not only will the Lord judge Babylon, but it'll be done publicly. There'll be an audience watching this judgment. And the audience will not be sympathetic to Babylon. The audience will jeer and mock. 
Even the weakest of the peoples that Babylon has gobbled up will feel entirely free and unthreatened to quote this song, to say to Babylon in its doom, woe to him. That, that's the idea. Utter turnaround. The one who is mighty, the one who is gobbling up, the one who with his hook and his nets is gathering all peoples will have this said to him by all peoples. And so the Lord makes it clear that the overthrow and the judgment of Babylon will be done and done publicly. There will be an audience. And one of God's purposes, even in this judgment, is that he might grab a hold of the audience that they might realize he's acting. We'll see some of what this song says ascribes the Lord glory and honor. So even in God's judgment of Babylon, he has evangelistic, redeeming purposes that the audience might come to fear him, might come to ascribe glory to him. That's another way we can profit from this. Um, And then point two, this judgment is also really true for all who reject humble faith. All who in pride trust in themselves. Babylon's simply the poster boy, the archetype of that. There are those who humbly depend on the Lord by faith. The righteous live by their faith. And there are those whose spirit is proud within them. We, we now see the judgment of those with that proud spirit. Okay? And then we get to the woe. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own Now, these woes, to some respect, repeat well-known Proverbs already in Israel's tradition. Um, Let me just read to you uh, Proverbs 1, 18 to 19. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. So the Lord has set up in the world around us patterns of reaping and sowing where frequently those who would live by unjust gain are actually plotting and striving and trapping themselves in their own lives. Those who live by the sword die by the sword, as our Lord Jesus said. That's the idea here. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. And um, for how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Now, point C here is a Hebrew play on words. The word for debtors can also be translated biters. And the idea is the creditor always gets their bite. The debtor always gets bitten. They, they're, they're taking their chunk of the pie. And so the play on words here, this is just one of the things going on in the Hebrew, is that you will be devoured by your debtors. The ones who you've been saying, oh, you will rise up and take from you. Your debtors will devour you. Which is what Proverbs 28, 8, whoever multiplies his wealth by interest and profit gathers it from him who is generous to the poor. So Babylon has gathered up, stolen, bespoiled the nations, demanding tribute, demanding obedience. And these nations that have been so pillaged will in turn pillage Babylon. Complete reversal. Complete reversal. Verse 8 makes that point explicit. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. And then we get what almost functions as a chorus a refrain for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Now, I'm not confident the nations will all see the Lord's purpose in that, but in this song, we get to see God's purpose. You could imagine nations so treated by Babylon may just simply out of pure revenge, simply out of pure recompense, give to them. But the Lord's making it clear 
that he is doing this because of the shed blood of man and the violence done to the earth and to the cities who dwell in them. That, that, that charge appears at the end if you look down in verse 17. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, the cities and all who dwell in them. Which means ultimately the Lord in part is acting out, meeting out this judgment because of the dishonoring of his image in man, dishonoring of his good earth, his planet that he has made, that Babylon is doing. You remember Genesis 9, 6, the Lord institutes the death penalty for murderers. Why? Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So God's purposes in judgment are to redeem to vindicate his image in man that Babylon so callously, wantonly spilled for the violence done to his good earth and his land. The pillager will be pillaged. And not just pillaged, but tauntingly so, with stinging mockery. Point number two, the fortified will be dismantled. The fortified be dismantled. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. So the first woe is against a people greedily taking far more than they need, just gathering up everything from those around and loading themselves up with, with debtors and pledges. Woe to them. Here, it's the notion of safety. The fortified will be dismantled. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high. That's the picture of security. Birds' nests are built in trees, most frequently not on the ground because it's harder to get at them in trees. Yes, I know there are some birds that build nests in the ground, but... The idea here is that it's, it's spoken to in Job 39.27. Is that your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? So, so Babylon is doing what they're doing in part to ensure their safety. They're both weakening potential adversaries, and they're able to build for themselves strong houses and fortifications. They're, they're providing their own security. They're providing their own Salvation. They're providing their own safety. Woe to those who would do so through evil. That's, that's the idea. Woe to those, woe to him who wickedly makes himself secure. Woe to him who wickedly makes himself secure. Now the turnaround here is the very things that you're setting up to secure yourself will condemn you. The first turnaround is the you, you pillage, you'll be pillaged here. Rather than safety and security, why, why would you build fortified cities? Why would you do this? You want securities. You want safety. You want to get rid of threat. What have they done in reality? They've brought shame. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many people. So, so Babylon did what they did, that they might be secure and safe. And what they've really done is ensured shame for themselves. And they forfeited their life. Forfeited their life. Again, tying back to the, what God said to Noah, that those who shed blood, by man their blood shall be shed. By, by wantingly killing man made in God's image, Babylon has forfeited its life. They, they meant to ensure their own safety, their own 
protection. What they've actually done is brought shame upon themselves, forfeited their life. And their guilt is so strong that their very fortifications will condemn you. Your own fortifications will condemn you. I mean, this language goes back to Genesis 4, where Cain killed Abel, and the Lord God says to Cain, Abel's blood is crying out from the earth. So when you picture inanimate objects crying out, it's, it's the notion that your guilt is so strong, so absolute, so clear. The message is so unarguable that even your lintel and your beams will cry out. Jesus said something similar about the rocks crying out, that he was the Messiah. The very artifacts of their security, their houses that they've built, will condemn them. Will condemn them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You devise shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork Respond. Um, it's the second woe. Third woe. Third woe. And again, we've got to move quickly. We have, we have communion this morning. Um, the civilized will be erased. The civilized will be erased. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire? And nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So here we get another insight into what they're trying to do. In the first woe, they're trying to just keep up possessions and spoil. In the second, we see that Babylon was endeavoring to ensure their own safety and security. Here, they, they, they want to be civilized. They want to make a city, and especially in this world, making of a city, founding a city is how you make a name for yourself. This ties all the way back to Babylon's founding. The founder of Babylon is Nimrod. Um, Genesis chapter 10, Cush fathered Nimrod, verse 8. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. I'll pause. You may wonder, how on earth did Nimrod take on the derogatory, rude connotations it has today? I'm pretty sure it's Bugs Bunny. No, no, this, just to give you an idea of how the, no, no, how, to give you an idea of how biblically literate former generations were. You remember, what, what epithet, what name does Bugs Bunny use on the mighty hunter Elmer Fudd? He calls him Nimrod. It's mocking him, you mighty hunter. And that was on a children's cartoon that they expected a fair number of the people watching it would pick up on. We've lost the original context. We just know Nimrod something to call someone who's rude. But no, bugs would taunt him in his hunting endeavors. Be very, very quiet, you know, right? <laughs> Calling him, you Nimrod, you mighty hunter. People used to know their, the culture used to know their Bibles more than they do now. I'm pretty sure that's, that's how that connotation came. But Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So Nimrod is a mighty hunter. He founds Babel. And then what's the first thing we learn about Babel in the very next chapter of Genesis? They are obsessed with, they are consumed with the idea of making a name for themselves, getting reputation and honor and glory. Genesis eleven fourteen. they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. 
Let us make a name for ourselves, right? So the very origin of Babylon ties in with this. We, we want a reputation. We want glory. We want honor. And the way, one of the ways you did is you found a city. I, I think it's also seen in how the, the response to this is the, the vanity of their project. Woe to him who builds a town on bloodshed and founds a city on iniquity. But that's what, that's what Nimrod, the early Babylonians, wanted to do. As Babylon shows up again and again in the scripture, this is tied with them. Their pride. I mean, even linking back to 2.4, his, his heart is not right within him. He's proud. As Nebuchadnezzar becomes the poster boy of this, look at Babylon that I've made. They want a legacy. They want a reputation. And that word house, um, back in verse 9, it had the same double entendre that exists in English. Um, the house, the building you're in, house, like the house of Stuart, a, a, a dynasty. It plays in Hebrew as well. They, they want to build a city, and they, they want to found a town. They want a legacy and a reputation. And What do we learn? Woe to him who builds a town in bloodshed. Your labor shall be burned. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? And I think the idea is this. You're going to endeavor and work hard and you're going to labor. Even in Babel's founding with the tower, there was a lot of effort, a lot of labor and a lot of work. And what was the product, the result of that labor? Nothing. The tower wasn't completed. Your labor shall be burned your toil for glory is in vain. Your toil for glory is in vain. They, they want a legacy. They want a dynasty. They, they want civilization and glory and honor. The work of their hands burned. Their toil for glory is in vain. Again, point out how memorable and pithy this, this taunt is. Jeremiah I believe wrote a little later than Habakkuk, actually quotes, I believe quotes this. Listen to Jeremiah 51, 58. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the broad wall of Babylon shall be leveled to the ground. Her high gates shall be burned with fire. The peoples labor for nothing and the nations weary themselves only for fire. Sounds like Jeremiah has read Habakkuk and this stinging pithy taunt lives on in Jeremiah's writings. The civilized will be erased. And here we get one of the redemptive elements in all this. God's judgment has two sides. There's the side of justice, recompense for the guilty. But for those who can watch, those who can learn from it, there's even redemptive purposes. Look, look in contrast. One of the reasons why I think this, this emphasis is on their seeking of glory and civilization is what do we read here? But the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You were laboring for your own glory to be spread abroad for your cities and your reputation and your legacy to be great. It will come to nothing. The work of your hands will burn. All that you're endeavoring to strive after is vanity. It's like, this stripe, it's like grabbing soap bubbles. In contrast to that, the Lord God, his glory, his glory will be seen. And perhaps some of the nations who witness Babylon's judgment will understand God is getting glory for himself. God is vindicating his righteousness. 
So even as we watch God's judgment fall, it's an invitation for the audience to ascribe glory to him. It's an an invitation for the audience to side with him. That's another reason we can benefit from this passage. So the knowledge of the Lord's glory will fill the earth. And again, so much here, but we've got to keep moving. Fourth, woe. The shameless will be debased. The shameless will be debased. Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. An utter shame will come upon all your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of beasts that terrify them. For the blood of man and the violence to the earth, the cities and all who dwell in them. So, what do we, what do we have here? Well, what we have is, I believe, a metaphorical description of their sin. It's possible that the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, does exactly this. But I think it's clear from other passages of judgment that this is a metaphor. This is like this. And so the Bible even has accounts of people intentionally getting others drunk. You can think of Lot's daughters. You can think of David getting Uriah intoxicated. In the idea, the hopes that some sort of sexual activity that otherwise they wouldn't do would take place. Um, I think this wicked strategy is often employed in frats. Um, I think you get the idea. It's, 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 it's wicked, it's detestable, it's base. And there's a sense of betrayal in it. Because the, the, presumably when you invite someone to drink with you and carouse with you, you're doing it in a friendly spirit. But here, the, really the goal is to get the person drunk that they might be made publicly ashamed. Like Noah, when he got drunk and fell asleep in his tent naked. And so the commentators argue over how how is Babylon's treatment of Lebanon like this? We can't be sure, can't be certain. Possibly it's inviting these other nations in to join them in the conquest, only to leave them on the sidelines as a heap of rubble. But in some sense, like those who wickedly intoxicate their neighbors, invite them to be drunk, only to debase them, only to publicly shame them, Babylon has done this except to the land, to the peoples. They've uncovered the land's nakedness. They've stripped bare Lebanon and these peoples. So woe to him who denigrates others. Woe to him who denigrates others. This picture of the cup is frequently used with the nations. Listen to Lamentations 4.21. Rejoice and be clad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But, you shall, but to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. And again, what we have here is a 100% turnaround. What Babylon did is done to them by the Lord. You force others to drink to uncover their nakedness, their shame, Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. If you're wondering why not only does God judge Babylon, but also predict this mocking song, it's commensurate with their crimes. How fitting is it for one who who made others drunk to uncover their nakedness, to shame them, They then will drink from the Lord's right hand, and their shame will be uncovered. 
And again, I remind you, it, Babylon's downfall was during a drunken party when Balthazar brought out the, the vessels from the temple, holy vessels set apart for the worship of the Lord, and was drinking with them. And that's when the hand wrote on the wall. That's when Babylon went down in this context of drunken debauchery and shame. Your glory will be turned to shame for the land, animals, and man, for the violence done against land, animals, and man. Okay, we've got to keep going. Finally, the fifth woe. The idolatrous will be powerless. The idolatrous will be powerless. The first four woes focus on Babylon's greedy, wicked, violent, treacherous treatment of men bearing God's image, the lands they dwell in, the animals, the cities. This last woe is primarily vertical, the offense against God Almighty. The woe, this this woe breaks form a little bit. The others have started with woe to him. The woe doesn't show up until verse 19, but let's read 18 to 20. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver. There is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. What we get before we get the woe is a statement about idols. Idols are worthless because they deceive. Idols are worthless because they deceive. Jeremiah 10.8, they are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. In one sense, Paul can even say an idol, an idol's temple, it's nothing. It's not contaminated. If you found some idol practiced by ancient peoples, it's not haunted. But idols as they're used, idols as they function, are very dangerous and very harmful for they deceive. They promise power and action. But as we see the title here, the idolatrous will be powerless. Idols are worthless because they deceive. And then we get a picture of how they deceive, and that's when our woe shows up. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. That, that's the danger. Idols invite trust. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Woe to him who trusts in them. Turn, keep, your, keep your finger here. Turn to Psalm 135. Um, th- this type of logic, the worthless futility of idols, is, is again and again repeated in the scripture. And one of the most memorable ones is Psalm 135. And the contrast is always this. They have painted mouths, but they don't talk. They have painted eyes, but they don't see. They have painted ears, but they don't hear. They're powerless to save. They're powerless to deliver. They're powerless to act. And the people worshiping them should know that because they made them. There's a whole one in Isaiah about you cut down the tree and you cut half the log in half and half of it you eat your dinner with and the other half you bow down to as a god and say, you made me. Psalm 135, 15. Idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have ears, 
but do no. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. And then notice what happens to those who worship them. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. I think that's the basis of Jesus saying to the Pharisees, keep on seeing but do not see. Keep on hearing but do not hear. You worship idols long enough, you too become unhearing, unseeing. Woe to those who trust in them. They promise deliverance. They promise great things. And they are entirely, your next point, impotent. They are entirely impotent. I'll read to you from one other passage, great highlight of this. You remember Elijah goes up on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. They have a showdown. And Elijah lets them go first. Call on your God, says to them. At the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day. Oh, no, sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Sorry. Going back to 1 Kings 18, um, starting back in verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull, prepare it first. If you are many, call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. And as midday passed, they raved until the time of the offering of the oblation But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Idols are powerless. They're impotent. Now they're worshiping overt idols. But again, woe to all who trust in created things. Here's the basic. You're trusting in the work of your hands. And for us, modern day idols might be a little more nuanced. Your securities. Money you've got in your bank. Your insurance policies. All of those are, again, trusting in the created order, trusting in things made with our hands that are powerless to save. Woe to him who trusts in an idol. Woe to him who calls upon an idol to deliver him. Now, what's the contrast here? We've got to move very quickly now. Verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The idol has no breath, no spirit. That's Hebrew word for breath can also mean life or spirit. It's lifeless, it's powerless, it's breathless. The God who is spirit lives in his holy temple. I don't have time, but I think he's building off of Isaiah 2 here. But what's, what's the point? I, I think the point of this is, as we come to a summary, God's judgment is fitting. God's judgment is righteous. God's judgment is takes into account the severity of the crime. But it also is an invitation to all those who watch to repent and tremble. What's the idea here? The Lord is in his holy temple. In contrast to these worthless idols, keep silent before him. He'll speak. He'll judge the nations. He will do what is right. 
And so even in this taunting song is a call to honor the Lord God, the Lord God whose glory will cover the earth. This is the same logic Jesus got out of judgment. Remember they came to him and they asked him, they said a tower fell on some people. You know, just like the tower fell in 2000, 2000, 2001. So tower fell on some people. What do we make of that? Well, Jesus said what to make of that is to repent. Or Or you too will perish. When we see God's judgment fall on others, we ought to be reminded that we deserve judgment. And we ought to be reminded the wages of sin is death, that we deserve this judgment, and we ought to ascribe him glory. We're given this song, we're given this insight to be certain that the wrongs will be righted, that Babylon will be judged. Look, look back over in Habakkuk to chapter 3. Habakkuk gets this. Chapter 3, verse 16. Starting next week, we'll look at his song of trust. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk was asking, Lord, Lord, you're too holy. You're too pure to let this happen. Why are you letting them do this? Why aren't you striking them down? The Lord says, I I will. And my judgment will be fitting. You'll be satisfied. He hears this judgment and he, he, okay, then I can wait. Now, there's not a promise that in this life, God will right every wrong and judge every evil. At least not now. When Christ returns, he will. But we can be confident that in the final judgment, every wrong will be righted and accounted for. That God will let no evil slip through. Which, of course, raises the question for us, does that also include our evil? I mean, sure, be confident that that these wicked people in the world aren't going to get away with it. Pol Pot, Hitler... But then that also means I got out on that list, Jeremy. And so as God judges, learn from it. Humble yourself. Trust in him. Don't try to establish your own glory. Don't try to establish your own name. Look to him establishing his glory. And keep silent before the Lord. There's also a sort of implied, even rebuke to Habakkuk. God is holy and righteous. He'll be seen to be such. Let every mouth that would protest, object, and argue close itself in honor before him. That's what, that's what Habakkuk's going to do. Habakkuk's going to take the hint. Okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you. We would do well to do that as well. And ultimately, it's because the Lord Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us. It's because God's wrath has fallen on him that we can come before God. We're in a moment, we're going to have our time of communion to, to highlight that. God's, God's wrath and his judgment is pure, holy, and righteous. And for those of us who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a substitute, one who has received the punishment in our stead. And so let me have a word of prayer and we'll transition to our time of communion. Lord God, we thank you that you are holy. We thank you that no evil will escape your judgment. That no one here on earth will ultimately get away with it. And we confess it can be hard to watch and see evildoers in the world around us prosper for a time, appear to be exalted for a time. Lord, give us the patience to trust you to judge righteously in your time, 
to trust you to exalt the lowly in your time, to bring down the high in your time. Help us to resist the urge to pour out our own wrath on man. When we, when we see your wrath poured out, we will be satisfied. We will have nothing to add. And Lord, let us also consider our ways that our lives are equally deserving of judgment. And let us look to the one who drank to the dregs the cup of your wrath that we might live. In Jesus' name, amen.